Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast. This week, Darius sits down with Richard Wolna, manager of elite-rated M&G Optimal Income, as well as M&G Corporate Bond and M&G Strategic Corporate Bond Funds, to discuss inflation and interest rate rises in depth and what it means for bonds. Hello, I'm Darius McDermott from Fund Calibre, and this is the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the most high-profile fixed-income managers, Richard Wilner, who manages a number of elite-rated funds. Richard, good morning. How are you? Morning, Darius. So, look, fixed-income, um, we have to start with uh, the macro, and the macro today is dominated by inflation and interest rates. So, in the UK, we've had a couple of rate rises um, in the last few months, which some may have thought were surprised and some may have thought were a little bit late. Um, US also looks like it's going to be heading to, to rate rises uh, sooner rather than later and probably more than we thought um, a year ago. Let's start there. What's your view on uh, inflation and where you see that taking interest rates in the, in the next six to 12 months? Okay. Well, uh, there's always a, a, um, uh, the forefront of our minds is where interest rates are going to be. Being a bond investor, we focus on where long-term interest rates are going to be. Uh, but obviously, all the short-term interest rates, when you add them up over time, gives you the average long-term interest rates. Uh, and they set the tone and the cost of money. And if short rates are very high, it tends to mean that long-term interest rates are high. And if short rates are very low, it tends to mean that long-term interest rates tend to follow that trend. Uh, so uh, it's a, a suitable place to start. Uh, the question is, is, is why do they use interest rates and why are they moving these interest rates? Interest rates get moved around in order to either encourage consumption, they are very low, so therefore you borrow and you consume, or they are put very high, which means that you do not want to borrow and consume, you want to save. And this is the methodology that interest rates work. When interest rates are near zero, obviously it's lovely to, uh, you know, biases you towards borrowing. Uh, when interest rates are very high, you obviously cut your cloth accordingly and, and don't get involved. This is the transmission mechanism. This is what the Bank of England wants to do. This is why they set interest rates, why they're independent, and it's their purpose. When the economy is very weak, they obviously cut interest rates to increase consumption and reduce savings. And when the economy is very strong, they put interest rates up to discourage animal spirits uh, to make us uh, more conservative in our behavior uh, and uh, save as opposed to consume. The question is, uh, uh, you know, how does that policy work? And I think your pre preface was quite accurate in terms of is it surprising, is it late? And we'll spend some time talking about that as we go through the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but it takes, it takes 18 months to 24 months for uh, policy to work. Should we spend some time talking about that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That's sort of sort of a lag effect. I, I'm surprised it's that long. Um, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, let, let, let's talk a bit more about that. Well, the, the way we think it's that long is because that's what we empirically observe. When you look at the data, monetary policy takes 18 months, to 24 months to work. It takes a while. If they could interest rates, you decide to go and buy yourself a house. You don't buy it that day. Yeah. You don't move in that day. It takes you a while to buy a house. And then when you bought the house, it then takes you a while to, to uh, uh, refix it, bring your removal man, bring your lawyer in, uh, you know, pay the estate agent, 
all these kind of things take a while. The transaction takes a long time. It's a long lag. Yeah. Similarly, uh, you know, uh, with the economy, if it boosts the economy, people don't immediately go and hire people when rates are cut. They don't immediately go and fire people when rates are put up. It all works with a lag. Why do we say 18 months? It's because empirically we've observed this around the world. You find that when interest rate policy gets changed, whether it be the US, Europe, UK, if it has a meaningful effect, it tends to lag 18 months. And that's a very interesting sort of starting point, maybe for the next part of the conversation, is um, you know we have this high inflation now, we have full employment now, and the high inflation and full employment we have is in response to the very easy monetary policy we had 18 months ago. And then we had 18 months, so, two years so, ago, yeah. So we've got high inflation. Why is that? Because we've had the easiest monetary policy on record. We've been printing money. You know, we've got strong growth. So you can see in the real time as we sit here, why is the world booming? There's obviously outside effects very different this time in terms of obviously the public health response that's gone on. But from a purely monetary perspective, you can see the inflation and strong growth we have now is a function of the monetary policy of the Bank of England uh, and the budget deficits we ran uh, you know, during the, uh, the, the COVID period. So when we have this higher inflation on the lag from the money that we, we that, that were put into the system over the last 18, 24 months, and then we see interest rates going up, what does that mean for bonds? Because my basic bonds 101, uh, inflation bad, rates going up bad, is that the case? And with that lagging effect, are we already partly through it? as the market looks forward to these rate rises, or maybe look forward is the wrong terminology, but <laughs> expects, expects these rate rises to come. What does that mean for, for, for my standard bonds? Well, it's, um, it's, um, uh, it's a correlation, between, as I said before, between short rates and long rates. It depends what happens. If you think that inflation is permanently going to be high and above 2%, that means the central bank will have to run a high interest rate, not for a week, a year, but for a number of years, which means the average long-term interest rate will be very high. Yeah, will go up. If you think that just this move the Bank of England's done now is going to kill inflation and we go back to deflationary world, then obviously bonds are value because if inflation is low, then bonds are by the value and the central bank doesn't have to put rates up to hit its 2% inflation target. So really, it's a, bit a view about inflation. Do you think that the central bank's actions and the outside inflation world mean that this is a temporary, uh, to take a central bank word, uh, you know, blip in inflation, or do you think it's something more permanent? The more permanent the inflation problem is, the longer and higher interest rates have to be, the less permanent the inflation problem is, the lower and the shorter the hiking in rates has to be. Obviously, we invest for long-term. We look at long-term interest rates, uh, and uh, you know, that's, that's what drives us. There is a strong correlation between the two, you have had periods before where you know interest rates have gone up, uh, and it's had a big effect on long-term bond markets. At other times where they've gone up, and it's had a de minimis effect. It depends on whether you think it's a temporary measure, or whether it's a permanent measure. And what's what's your base case today, then, Richard? Are you in the longer, for, higher for longer with rates uh, because of inflation, or are you in this sort of like camp where a number of people think that the peak of inflation is? nearer rather than further away? Uh, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, I'm in the, um, uh, the central banks are being very um, relaxed about in creating inflation. 
Uh, it's almost like a policy response. They don't want inflation near zero because it means their policy response is that their armory, their toolkit is de minimis because it's hard to get negative rates. So they sort of want inflation. I think they've just been a bit surprised about how much they've actually created. Yeah. Uh, I think they'd be very happy if the number was three, four. They'd be like, yeah. well, great, this isn't a problem. But when the number's six, seven, they're sort of their models aren't working and they don't quite understand it. So they are very surprised by this. Uh, as you know, many people are, um, and yeah. so including myself, I'm surprised it's got this high. I thought it could go high, but surprised it got this high. So the question is, what's the, what's the Bank of England, what's the ECB, what the Fed going to do? It depends on what they decide to be as their policy response. If they want to kill inflation, they can, but it means they have to be super aggressive. I don't think there's the economic or political will for them to be super hawkish, mega hawks. A hawk is like an aggressive right, rising against yeah. I'd argue they're more dovish, a term we use in the bond market, which is a bit more peaceful. Uh, and um, so I think they're a bit more dovish. And as such, uh, they're, they're going to be very slow in reacting. And this slow reaction uh, means that inflation will be higher for longer. If inflation is higher for longer, then bond yields need to be higher for longer. Now, things will change that. You know, as the market changes, valuations change, we'll change our opinion and the like of the data on the economy or the data in terms of what we can buy and sell. But my view is that they're, uh, to use an expression, uh, behind the curve, which is, is, is almost saying like, you're just one step behind. The question yeah. is, are they one step behind, two step behinds, or three step behinds? Yeah. Uh, but they're definitely behind. But I would think, uh, and I, I, again, I take your view on this. There's a certain consensus that we're going to get a number of rate rises fairly quickly now, and we may even get larger rises, i.e., not just 25 basis points or 0.25 of a percent, but we may even see a half a percent in America in in March. Is that your sort of view that they'll go, having become behind the curve, as as you've explained? You know, they may be a bit late to the party. Do you think there'll now be some short aggressiveness on rate rises, or? that they will just have this slow and steady rising policy? I think they, uh, as they've got a history of behaving in a steady and predictable manner. It's not surprising given it's a public policy. Public policy tends to be steady and progressive. It's run by a committee. Committees tend to be steady and progressive. Um, so, uh, you know, you'd expect it to be in a steady and progressive style because, you know, they stick to that's the kind of committee and organisation they are, generally speaking. Yeah. I think the Bank of England is a little bit different. I think the Bank of England is sort of can be quite independent. Uh, you know, they can think differently, which is probably why, you know, when you look around the world, they were the first to stop buying assets. They yeah. were the first to start putting rates up. I think that's to their credit. I think that they are aware of this problem more than other central banks, and you've got to acknowledge that, which is why we're first in the, in, in the hiking cycle and the developed world. Uh, 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 we first yeah. in the hiking cycle. Um, so from my point of view, um, they have got this uh, challenge about putting rates up. Step back from it all and think about what we talked about at the start of the conversation. Low rates stimulate growth because you consume. High rates stop growth because you save. Okay. Yeah. So there's a great desire to find a neutral rate a rate that doesn't encourage you to consume, a rate that doesn't encourage you to save. So let's call that a neutral rate. If we step back and think historically, bond investors and economists have thought the neutral rate is the interest rate 
less the inflation rate. So let's say the inflation is always 2%. Yep. And interest rates are 2%. At the end of the year, that's neutral. It's nothing happening. You know, that's a neutral interest rate that you have. At the moment, obviously, inflation is way above 2 So we've got a very, very stimulative real rate. But if inflation is 2 then bond yield, bond yield should be 2 to be neutral. So that would be the first stopping point and where 10-year bond yields can go to or 30-year bond yields or one-year bond yields or base rates or, or whatever they call it these days. You know, that's where they can go to. A, a, a further school, pre the crisis, the school would be different. The school would argue the neutral rate isn't where inflation is. It's where real GDP growth is. Right. Because it's inflation plus growth. And growth averaged 2%. So the argument going in before the financial crisis, the neutral rate was 4%. 2% of GDP and 2% of It's real growth. Yes, so we've yeah. we, we, gains, we grow by 2%. Therefore, if the economy is growing that rate, if you can, if you can grow at 2% and you can borrow at zero, you borrow and grow. Yeah. So there's got to be some sort of equilibrium somewhere. So the, the concept is that the, the neutral rate is either 2, assuming 2% inflation, or 4, assuming, assuming 2% inflation and 2% growth. Now, at times, interest rates need to be above neutral because you need yep. to slow the economy down by getting people stopping consuming and start saving. And at times, it needs to be below neutral in order to get people to consume and stop people saving. So that gives you a guideline. So it depends on if you take the post-financial crisis argument, you'd say neutral is two. Pre-financial crisis, you'd argue that neutral is four. And then rates can go above or below those. We can sit and talk about whether it should be two or should be four, but basically they're below two. So we don't yeah. really need to have that discussion until we get there. Then we can think actually, we, we, we know which side of the equation we're on. And, and one other thing that's very, very different this time around, and, and this is that, and you, again, it's useful to look back. The inflation we have now wasn't caused by interest rate moves. The central bank moved interest rates from a half to zero. That yeah. didn't cause seven or eight percent inflation what caused the inflation is obviously uh, you know hopefully some temporary effects from 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 what's been happening in covid it was a big budget deficit obviously creates the inflation and that was facilitated by the printing of money so this time around when the central bank has already acknowledged when it gets to a certain rate it is going to stop putting short-term rates up and it's going to unwind the unconventional policy it's had so the big question for us is what happens when as opposed to printing money, they it's decide taking it away. destroying it, burning it, removing it. I'm not quite sure what word they're going to use, but uh, deprinting. I mean, cancelling is probably the uh, appropriate yeah. word to use. Yeah. Uh, so they cancel the money they printed. Uh, I think that's going to be very, very interesting for the markets and how that works. So, look, let's talk about your most flexible fund. Um, let's... Optimal income. In optimal income, you've got lots of choice from sort of government bonds, investment grade, high yield, and you can even buy a few equities uh, should, should you choose to do so. Where are you finding opportunity today? Uh, the purpose of this fund isn't, is to find the optimal income stream. So we think the income stream is a function of two things. Are they going to pay you? That's the credit risk, which is less so generally in governments and more so as you go towards investment grade and high yield. And secondly, how do you value that? Well, that's a function of the debate we've had already. Inflation, inflation is really high, then that income stream is worthless in a number of years' time. Inflation is very low, that income stream is worth a great deal. 
So it's a mixture yeah. of the credit quality and the value of that income stream. So the terms of that would be the probability of default risk in bond word language. Like only going to company going bust and not being able to pay you for lending yeah. them money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you'd expect to get paid more if you if you you, you might you know if people have got friends they trustworthy they might lend money to other ones they might decide not to lend money to. Uh, <laughs> you know uh, that's the kind of uh, you know exercise that we work through uh, on a more you know uh, a wider basis look, looking globally. So, so they're the two things we're trying to find this optimal income stream. Uh, and, and that applies to all assets. It applies to bonds, it applies to equity, it applies to property. They all produce an income stream and you work out you know, what the present value of that building, what the present value of that uh, uh, equity is or, or that bond is. A bit easier math-wise to do it in bonds than it is in the others uh, because the nature of, the, uh, uh, of bond investing. So, so that's the starting point we have. And we look at these asset classes; they behave very differently. You know, government bond funds uh, you have very little credit risk. Investment grade has more credit risk, and high yield has lots of credit risk uh, because obviously they're, they're weaker counterparts uh, in terms of have more borrowing, uh, maybe less predictable earnings, and maybe more borrowing and less predictable earnings. Yeah, and, and so we so we work through that, and, and that's the area we go through. Where we differ on this fund from uh, from traditional bond funds is we look globally. We're not just focused on the UK. We hedge all the returns in our sterling class back into sterling, so we're not an FX type fund. So you're not taking currency risk. You're just you're no. using global bonds, but without that currency risk. So that's yeah, and that just gives us a big pool to invest in. It's a bit like uh, I mean, one of the challenges that face all all our all investors is if you decide I want to buy an equity and you just look to the FTSE 100 you'd have a very different outcome than if you look globally to where things would be. 25, 30 years ago, the FTSE 100 would have been a good proxy for where you can invest in the world because we would have had lots of tech. We would have had lots of different businesses. But now the sector, the industry has become very sort of sector-based. I'm sure it's a challenge that you and and other fund managers uh, and and people listening to this have found over time. You have to look globally to invest. And we do a similar thing on bonds, you know, to have a, a wider palette of, uh, of issues to buy from. So, so that's, and with that flexibility, again, if we really like credit risk, we can own lots of high yield. If we're really defensive, we can own lots of safer government bonds. If we think growth is going to be very high and inflation is going to be very high, we won't want to own long-dated bonds whose value will fall. Uh, and if we think that interest rates are coming down and inflation is coming down, we will want to lock into that opportunity by buying these longer-term income streams. So it's an exceptionally flexible fund, which means it behaves very, very differently from many other funds, which are far more uh, index-aware or following, uh, uh, you know, an index. This is very much investment-led. We have other funds that, you know, are, are more conservative and more more tailored to look at an index. But this particular fund is the, is the widest palette for me to invest in, and to that extent. Sometimes we find the income stream available from equities attractive versus the income stream available for debt. Do you have any equities in the fund today with that sort of maybe wanting to get away from longer duration bonds, i.e. bonds with longer income streams? Are equities then attractive in this inflationary environment? Uh, We have uh, around about 5% of the NAV in equities, which is the fund's been going for 15 years now. It's hard to imagine. Is that the highest you go to is about 5%, isn't it? No, I think it's average has been 5% over the life average of the portfolio. Um, the highest we've been to was probably in 2013-14 when equities were exceptionally good value, when we got to over 10% of NAV. And there were some very attractive income streams there. 
so really, we look on a case-by-case basis. If the equity part of the capital structure is really, really good value versus where the bond part of the capital structure is, then we will reduce our exposure to the bond part and, and increase our exposure to the equity part. At the moment, that's very biased towards value stocks. So it's very biased towards um, uh, oil and gas, tobacco, telcos, uh, uh, autos. So it's very much in that value basic places where we find value. That's not always been the case. Back in 12 and 13, it's hard to imagine, but back in 12 and 13, we bought things like Microsoft, Google, and Apple. And you think, well, why are you buying those? You're a bomb fund. Because strangely, in 2012, 13, Microsoft, Google, and Apple were value stocks. Yes, they had a decent yield. (laughs) The market told me these things are never going to grow again. I don't care if they grow or not. As long as they pay me the income and don't decline, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite interesting, this whole concept about what a value stock is, what a growth stock is. A lot of it is based on what's observed, not what actually the company is doing. And it's my job to think what the company is actually doing, not just take you know, some industry or some, some, some article saying this is a great growth company. Uh, you know, We try to look beyond that and see what's actually happening under the... Uh, uh, under the bonnet of the company, it's something that MNG do across all sorts of all sorts of areas. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time and explaining to our audience how you look at that short and long term interest rates, how they actually lag and affect the economy, uh, and how those affect bonds. And um, you know, talking about the opportunities that you have within your own fund. So, thank you very much for your time. M&G Optimal Income is M&G's flagship offering. As we've discussed, this go-anywhere fund has a flexible mandate, which enables the manager to shift the interest rate exposure and to invest across fixed income spectrum. The fund can, and often does, invest in some equities. To learn more about the M&G Optimal Income Fund or other elite-rated funds run by Richard Walnock, please visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast for more episodes each week. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at your time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 